The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. James, the White Sox played a little bit better, and I say this in present and future and past tense because I guess that applies all the time because it can't get any worse than what we saw across the first 62 games of the season. So the White Sox are, are doing a little bit better. So that makes me feel good, James. Yeah, they're playing better. I mean, they're hitting. I, I, I mean, I even looking back at the Dodgers series, it's like I don't really think they played that bad in some of those games, they just like get away from starting pitchers, right? I mean, even what Friday night in Houston, like, I mean, I know it's blasphemy to call out your starting pitchers that want to get paid a lot of money soon, but I mean, like, that game was 3 3 before Lucas Giolito kind of imploded and he's been struggling lately. So, you know, they were in that game and they, you know, they won Saturday and, you know, the rest is to be determined. But I mean, just looking at the division, it's, it's just kind of, why I haven't given up yet because there's a hundred games left and they're like three or three or four back in the loss column from both teams. And they have the easiest second half schedule in baseball and they're finally starting to play a little bit better. So, you know, they're going to suck all of us back in. I think that's James Fox. He's our senior editor at future socks. Follow us on Twitter at future socks and also go to futuresocks.com. You'll see our entire library of all the content that we provide Attached to SoxMachine.com. So if you haven't heard, where have you been? But I appreciate everybody who has followed along our journey this summer as Future Socks and Socks Machine have been partners throughout. And we've had some fun putting out content. SoxMachine.com forward slash Patreon. I don't know. James, I get it wrong every time. Patreon.com forward slash Socks Machine. What? Whatever. If you want to be a patron, please consider supporting us. It really does make a difference for the content that we produce. And it continues to motivate us to get out a better product. So thank you to all who support us and subscribe to our podcast. Quite frankly, James, this has been a lot of fun doing it weekly every Tuesday. I mentioned the big league club because we have Jim Margulis, the editor in chief at Sox Machine with us later on in this episode as he took a trip out to the Winston-Salem area catching the dash, the advanced day affiliate of the Chicago White Sox. So we're going to get some 
Up close and personal perspective from Jim, who saw Oscar Colas and a number of other Winston-Salem Dash. And again, James, like this is important because as we start thinking about our next top 30, which has changed a ton, and we even brought this up on previous episodes, Baseball America is doing this thing where they're updating the top 30 consistently across all 30 teams in Major League Baseball. And we saw a handful of names littered across at least the top 15 of the White Sox updated top 30 list from Baseball America, which got us thinking, this is a system that is changing quickly. And with the draft coming up in about a month, this may not be the number 30 overall system anymore, I think. Yeah, like, I I mean, I don't. I don't really think they're last. I mean, look, I don't I don't think anybody is going to say that, you know, they're like, you know, in the top 10 or anything crazy like that. Like, I, I'm not even positive that they have a top 100 prospect and we'll see. But yeah, James Fegan of The Athletic wrote this week, you know, he, he talked to Chris Getz and I feel like some others and he wrote about five like important what offensive prospects in the White Sox system and it's Colson Montgomery who's playing well and Oscar Colas who everybody you know has kind of been tracking and then Yolbert um and uh Lenyon Sosa who we're going to talk about more and more obviously and then you know I think like Jose Rodriguez and Brian Ramos there's just like a whole list of of names I feel like that were that were talked about and there's been like a lot of gains in the system there's been a lot of development on the hitting side, you know, we talked to Andy Barquette in an earlier episode. I think that was a little bit, that was eye-opening and very enlightening. Just some of the stuff, like it seems like they finally had like a hitting plan, like organization-wide. And, you know, it's not working for everybody, obviously, but you, you've seen noticeable gains in certain spots. Like I feel like maybe Colson Montgomery would have done this anywhere. But, you know, when when Lenyon Sosa does what he's doing, that that's eye-opening just because of, you know, he, he's really like taken to being in the range of like top 100, top 150 prospects in baseball, like in Birmingham. Like this is, you know, it's not something we're used to seeing where guys just like go to Birmingham and like turn into studs. And he's he's kind of done that. So I, I'm curious to see everyone's re-rank, right? All the, the people that we read, like wh- where is this system going to be at midseason? I, I don't really know. Well, how about right now? Let's let's think about it now. I, I, I also want to hear your perspective on some of the pitching depth the White Sox have in this organization, but this has intrigued me a little bit. You brought up James Fegan's piece and a couple of those names in, in Lenyon Sosa and Brian Ramos. I mean, they're in the White Sox top 10 prospect rankings. It's just a matter of where. And Lenyon Sosa, is he the number one prospect in, in the White Sox system right now? Because to me, it's still Colson Montgomery. But Lenyon Sosa has an absolute case to be claimed as uh, the number one overall prospect. So something that people have told me is Lenin Sosa is going like in the top 100 in dynasty drafts. And I'm not a fantasy baseball player. I don't, I don't know anything about this. I play fantasy football only baseball is too much for me, but apparently like they're generally ahead of the, the prospect industry with some of this stuff. So people have kind of told me like, you know, if Lenin Sosa is going where he is in these, in these like, dynasty fantasy leagues that's an indication that like he's going to be on top 100 lists i don't know how true that is but we'll see but that so that's what i've heard um i would still have colson montgomery one i agree with you i mean he he's shown no signs of <clears throat> having to move off of shortstop at this point um you know he's got those Corey seager comps and look he hasn't hit for a ton of power but he's done pretty much 
everything else to the point where, you know, I think pretty soon we'll be hearing about Colson Montgomery finishing his 2022 season at Winston-Salem, which, you know, if he would have spent the entire season at Kannapolis, it would have been fine. But it seems like he, uh, he, he he's going to get that promotion, whether it's after the draft or whenever. And he he's a name to watch for, you know, I mean, he could be the White Sox, one of the White Sox Futures Games representatives. So, you know, Colson Montgomery was a 22nd pick in the draft last year. Um, and ev- everything's gone pretty well so far. The other guy you talked about, Lenyon Sosa, I mean, he's consistently had like a 140 WRC plus at Birmingham, which is crazy. So it's a big jump. Um, I think most people had him in the teens. Where did we, we had him in like the twenties maybe, but he, for me, like if I'm doing, I think we're going to do like an impromptu, like top 10 here. He's, he's two for me in the system right now behind Colson. I mean, he, he can play shortstop even though like, you know, he's played second, he's played third, but he can play short. And he's 22 mm-hmm. years old doing what he's doing at Birmingham. He should be, like, helping the big league club this year um, in a system like this that was 30 and probably isn't anymore. Like, he's absolutely in the top five, and I would put him two. And that's why it's so difficult to think about where to rank these players because a lot of it has to do with proximity to the big leagues as well as expectations, you know, draft capital. I mean, all of that stuff comes into play. And with Lenny and Sosa, you look at his numbers in Birmingham, the guy is so close to being major league ready if he's not there yet. Plus, he's 22. The guy's got 13 home runs in Birmingham. So it's really hard to to not put him at number one right now. But I still am stuck on Colson Montgomery because of the complete package, the tools, the consistency, the the on-base percentage, just the natural athleticism that he brings, especially as a shortstop, a longer shortstop in his frame. Left-handed bat who puts bat to ball at a consistent rate in his first full professional season. I am not willing to jump off the, the bandwagon of Colson at one yet. So that makes me think who's number two. And you can also put an argument in there, and I would listen wholeheartedly about Oscar Colas because of the pedigree that he brings to the table, as well as proximity to the big leagues. He might have a little bit longer of a trek just because of the international to state side part of adjusting to the game. But still, this it, it looks like the package is there in Oscar Colas to, to convince me to be uh, a regular major league starter in the outfield for the White Sox. If not next year, mid next year, maybe early in 2024. So that makes me think, okay, how does that relate to Lenin Sosa? And then we're just talking about the top three right now. And all three of these players, you can make an argument can be number one. So James, you mentioned the top 10. Let me list mine real quick. I'll get you yours. Mine, just impromptu, I think, as we were discussing this prior to the start of this episode, I wrote down 10 names, and here they are. I have Colson Montgomery, Oscar Colas, Lenyon Sosa, Norhe Vera, Sean Burke. That's my top five at this point. Then it's Jose Rodriguez, followed by Brian Ramos, Wes Kath, Christian Mena makes an appearance at number nine, and my top 10 rounds out with Romy Gonzalez, and I get Romy there because one, big league experience already, two, the 
the fact that he's got the frame, the athleticism, the power, the strength, the arm strength, all of it to play at a big league level in the infield or even in the outfield if necessary. I think this is a guy who's a big leaguer and deserves to be mentioned in the top 10, despite the fact that he's having a, a you know, slower season this year. Christian Mena is bursting onto the scene, and he is finally pitching at a full-season professional affiliate, and he looks awesome. At 19 years old, this guy looks like he is going to translate across the next year and a half, and we'll, we'll continue to monitor Mania, of course, but this is somebody who will propel up the system. I have extreme confidence, despite the fact that Pitching can be random at times, and you really don't know. But that's my top 10, James. Let me hear yours. You know, mine's actually very similar. Like, I would, like, here, here's the thing. Like, I understand arguments for Rodriguez and Ramos up here. Like, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and debated a lot of people about Brian Ramos. I, I like him. I just think, you know, with a corner profile at Winston, like, he's he's doing what he needs to be doing. Um, but I kind of need to see it at Birmingham personally. So I, I would put Colas three. I understand why somebody wouldn't. I mean, he's, you know, like 23, I believe. And he's definitely like a corner guy, but it's left-handed power that like, you know, the system really just doesn't have that much of. And I think he's going to finish his season in Birmingham. And then we'll be talking about him because I wouldn't be surprised if he's in like the fall league too. So, you know, I, I go to pitching after that, just like you. Norhe Vera hasn't thrown that much, but he's the highest upside starter in this system. So he's at Canapolis right now. He was cut short a little bit the other night because of a rain delay, but he's going to be very exciting as we round out the rest of this year. Sean Burke was our third rounder last year. He's already pitching in Birmingham. So, you know, he's part of your immediate pitching depth, like which I think we're going to get to in a little bit too, because there's, you know, the Davis Martin thing is, is fascinating for me. I don't have him in this top 10 just because he's 25, but that, that's been super interesting. I go Jose Rodriguez, six. Um, he's struggled a little bit. He, he's seemingly getting it together, but I mean, he's super young in Birmingham, you know, at double A and he can play shortstop. I have Ramos at seven. And then Wes Kath, I still, you know, Wes Kath is eight for me. He's played very well at Kannapolis lately, but again, like another probably corner profile. Like, we'll see if he stays at third. It's going to hurt him a lot if he can't. But, you know, he's hit. He's played well. I like that pick. It was still a good pick. This is where, for me, like, I I didn't really know what to do. You know, Mina, I'm a big fan as well. Um, I'm not going to go with him just because it's, you know, it's only Canapolis, so we'll see. Like, I need to see him at Winston. He's getting everybody out with breaking stuff. So, you know, the fastball's like 92, which is good. He's got to add velocity to the fastball. Once he does, I think he's going to be a fixture in their top 10, but I'm not quite ready yet. Matthew Thompson has been very impressive to me. And, you know, full disclosure, like we're recording um, – Sunday afternoon and he pitches today. So, you know, he could get bombed and I could look real dumb on Tuesday, but you know, Matthew Thompson, I just like that he's starting to string outings and appearances together and his athleticism is showing and he's like learning how to pitch and he's pitching really well. So he's at nine and then I'm slotting Jared Kelly in at 10 still. Um, you know, the body is a little bit better. He's healthy. He's pitching, which is the biggest thing. I'm very concerned about you know, just like the number of innings and seeing how many innings he can throw. But, you know, he's pitching consistently and the stuff is like back to looking, 
you know, like it did. It's just innings concerned. And this is like negligible. Like I could see like this could be Mena, this could be Romy Gonzalez, this could be a lot of different guys, Yolbert Sanchez. But, you know, I did want to be a little bit different. Um, but it's it's interesting. Like I, I'm very curious to see what this looks like once we do it at midseason, like with draft picks probably in the mix as well. Well, it's a good point to make, uh, you know, including Matthew Thompson or Matt Thompson in this because of the fact that following Norhe Vera, you believe Thompson's the next best pitching prospect in the system. Uh, and I totally understand that. When it comes to Christian Mena, James, I know you and I agree uh, about the potential there. I am buying into the potential. That's why I have him in the top 10 in June, on June 19th at this point. So I, I just wanted to throw that in there. The belief is real in Christian made on, on my end here. So that's it, James. Like that's our top 10. I think we're going to revisit this like very soon. We have a lot of draft conversation left on tap as well. Uh, we're going to have several guests upcoming leading up to the July 17th amateur draft. And of course yourself and Josh Nelson, even Jim Margulis, they're going to be doing stuff. So listeners, please follow along as James, Josh and Jim and everybody else at Sox Machine and Future Sox put together our draft profiles and previews and, and live uh, events. It's going to be interesting, depending on draft philosophy as well, to see where they decide to go at pick number 26. But James, before we get to Jim and his update on the Winston-Salem Dash, you wanted to talk pitching a little bit. You mentioned Davis Martin. Jimmy Lambert's a part of things at the big league level. This is a, a nice surprise that the White Sox were able to get the production from Davis Martin. Not to mention, shout out Johnny Cueto. The guy's been outstanding. Jimmy Lambert was developed consistently as a starting pitcher, but maybe now is time to commit him as a, as a long middle reliever. What do you think? Yeah. So it's one of the pot. So, you know, we've, we've mentioned James Fegan a lot, you know, his article that I read today was great. And it was, it was pretty funny because it was talking about Davis Martin and how Davis Martin like sticks his butt out before every pitch and why he does that. And I just like, okay, this is, just like one of those like quirky things that James often does, but it's, you know, it's because of something that he figured out like in the White Sox biomechanics lab that it's like helping him. So I'm not going to give his piece away. It is, you know, the athletics behind a paywall. So, you know, go and make sure you read that. But, you know, one of the things that Davis Martin being good has allowed the White Sox to do is use Jimmy Lambert, like in the bullpen and in shorter relief. And look, he's, he's not really, stretched out and ready to go five or six innings. And honestly, I don't even know if that's the best thing for him at this point because his stuff is really good. And, you know, it plays up in one and two inning roles. So I'm hoping that, you know, with this roster crunch that's coming and, you know, 13 position players, 13 pitchers, I'm hoping Jimmy Lambert stays. I'm hoping he's in a relief role. You know, it's doing this isn't necessarily the best thing for Jimmy Lambert long-term, but it's definitely the best thing for the White Sox right now. And he's 27 and he can help a team that is very much still in contention. So, you know, Davis Martin coming out of nowhere and becoming one of the best pitching prospects in this system. And, you know, the closest to the big leagues, obviously has, it's been a pretty big deal for the White Sox because it's slots guys underneath him. Following the Jimmy Lambert, Tommy John, and that was, 2019 or was that 2018 because I remember he returned 2019 right because he returned during the 2020 season and then he got hurt again yeah yeah he started yeah he started with the team in 2020 and he probably wouldn't have right if it wasn't the short season but then yeah then he kind of got hurt again right away and after that I had just ingrained it in my head that Jimmy Lambert would be most effective as a reliever so Hopefully it does come to fruition in terms of, 
you know, the success in his career, obviously it's better to be a starter, but if he can have major league consistency as a long reliever in the pen, Jimmy Lambert is a find and a value because look at what Ronaldo Lopez is doing currently. I mean, there is value in that spot at a major league pen anywhere. So all the best to Jimmy Lambert. We'll continue to monitor that as well. I mean, this is a White Sox draft pick that they've been developing for years. And the emergence of Davis Martin has been so fun to watch, James. And somebody else who we're trying to monitor, at least you're you're trying to monitor a little bit more closely than the rest of us, is Lloyd Del Cipelli. And you came to me with uh, a conundrum, and you're kind of confused about this guy. Why? Because I like the because the DSL is weird, Mike. That's why because we we've seen the White Sox send these guys to the DSL because of the bonus stuff, and I don't need to get into that again. But I mean, like Eric Hernandez is there, and Eric Hernandez kind of belongs there as a 17 year old Dominican million dollar signing. He's not really a guy that the White Sox have often, but he's somebody we're going to be talking about a lot, and he's killing it because you know he was kind of expected to kill it. Well, Lloyd El Chapelli, you know. We had uh, Phil Selig on to talk about him. The White Sox gave him 500K like earlier this year, and he's playing on the White Sox club in the Dominican Summer League. It's a 20 year old Cuban. They're playing him some at second base, but you know, he's like a five foot eight, 185 pound outfielder, hits left handed. They're playing him at second. So the DSL games are very strange for anybody that looks at box scores. You know, it's like, you know, there's like a bunch of hits and a bunch of errors and like they just like take forever and, and the White Sox team's been okay down there. But he's Lloyd El Chapelli's played in six games in the Dominican Summer League. 30 plate appearances only. See if you can guess what his weighted runs created plus is. So I looked at his numbers prior <laughs> to the podcast, okay? Yeah. but I So I only looked at his slash line. So his weighted runs created plus has to be like 300 it's or two, Yeah, it's 245. Now, obvious, oh, nice. now obviously, it's come on. Like, it's going to come down, whatever. And he doesn't belong in this league is the point. And I don't know how long he's going to stay there. So for me, like right away, I'm like, man, people are going to ask me about Lloyd El Chapelli, and I have no idea how good he is, and I have no idea how to rank him. So I hope Baseball America or somebody else does the job for me, and they put him at like 23, and then we have like some sort of baseline, because I don't really know what to do. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, it's a fun little mention with sample sizes. Always love having fun with sample sizes. He's got a 1350 OPS in uh, the Dominican Summer League. And that's also like, it's important to note, he's 20 years old. Coming from Cuba, that's, uh, he's, that's something to mind. He's like, I'm teaching summer school right now. It's like when I play kickball with the with, yeah. the, with the sixth graders <laughs> outside and kick it over their heads. Like I'm awesome, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's that's kind of what it seems like. Sort of a reminder that Norhe Vera dominated in the same way, just absolutely blown it by younger talent um, out in the Dominican when he was working with the White Sox prior to his trek stateside. So, you know, it's all, all of that perspective is important to put into context. But James, this is fun. We have more for you here on the Future Sox podcast. Jim Margulis is going to join us after taking a trip to Bowling Green. He was watching the Winston-Salem Dash and the Chicago White Sox prospects at the advanced A level. We're going to get his thoughts next, but don't go anywhere. We have a break first. If you don't want this break, Become a Patreon. We get you a free episode of this podcast every week if you subscribe to our Patreon page. Go to SoxMachine.com. We're going to take a break. Come back. Jim Margulis, coming up. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Pleased to welcome in Jim Margulis, editor-in-chief of Socks Machine, as well as Future Socks, and also part of the Socks Machine podcast with our pal Josh Nelson. Jim, Pleasure to talk to you, man. We're going to get into the big league club a little bit because I want to talk White Sox with you since we have you. But you took a trip to Bowling Green to check out the Winston-Salem Dash, the events A affiliate of the Chicago White Sox. And we want to pick your brain on some of the things that you saw out there within the White Sox affiliate. Um, Here's where I'm most curious. Did you get that feeling when you were watching Brian Ramos play that, that made you say, yeah, this is a future White Sox big leaguer? I actually had a little bit of that feeling last year, seeing, seeing him with Kannapolis, uh, you know, with the White Sox, with the way some of their prospects have uh, matriculated in the past and how some of them have hit walls, especially guys who are expected to hit for power. Um, like I'm thinking like the Luis Gonzalez, uh, Blake Rutherford before him, like Diane Vicieto, like the guys who are expected to hit for power just couldn't pull the ball in the air. Like even Vicieto, as strong as he was, could not lift the ball in the air. And for Canapolis last year, Ramos is okay. But when I saw him, you know, a couple games in person, I saw like, oh, he's lifting the ball to the pole side. There's a line out to the shortstop. There's a there's a well hit ball to left field. Like he wasn't getting great results, but the swing was there. He didn't look like he was overexerting himself. And uh, you know, given the you know decent walk to strikeout ratio and age for level, just thought, oh, this is kind of a guy. Um, <laughs> I like what yeah. I'm seeing so far. Uh, and you know, when we were, uh, ranking them, uh, or when I was ranking, cause I do my own rankings at socks machine and just, you know, I, I kind of play hunches and guys I hate to see traded. That's how I, how I view them. I almost considered them ranking in my top five just because, you know, I liked what I saw and I liked the power. Um, the, the, my questions were like, you know, just still in low a and Canapolis is kind of a mess and low a was a mess for a lot of teams around the system. So I kind of wanted one more year post pandemic to understand where talent levels were, ultimately settling in, in a ball. Uh, and also just defensively, wasn't sure where he's going to play. He had the shoulder issue that limited him to second base and limited his throwing. But this time around, I saw a massive 400 plus foot Homer, like nearly 110 miles per hour off the bat down the left field line. Not sure if it was fair. Like it was uh, ripped down the, you know, well over the foul pole. Like there's no real visual reference for, you know, where it landed. Uh, I think it left the park. It was only 318 to left. So it cleared the wall by plenty. Uh, the left fielder kind of threw up his hand saying like, that wasn't, that wasn't fair, but uh, the, the umpire called it such. And it was, it was certainly like rewarded for his contact. Also, you know, just everything was going to left field in the air, like not really rolling anything over, hit a, you know, hit a couple balls to the right side, but just the good contact was going to the left side as you'd like to see. Uh, and also, uh, what I hadn't seen last year was a couple of nice plays defensively. He uh, ranged left and collected himself to make an off balance, but ultimately, like you know, controlled throw to first. And then he made a nice little ranging catch along the uh, wall on the uh, left field side when he was shifted more towards shortstop. So he covered some ground. He made some throws, and 
ultimately, like it's he looks like a a great prospect. Now I'm kind of kicking myself for uh, ranking him just seventh when I uh, you know. I was ultimate. I was the high man on Ramos until Eric Long and Hagen came in, like at the end of April, and said, "Oh, he's number two. and that kind of upset me. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> if I had a month to work with, I'd have ranked him higher too. Uh, yeah. I, I call shenanigans on that, but uh, ultimately, I, I like the progress he's making. And when we were talking about it earlier with the, on the episode with James, and we were going through our top 10 list because it was interesting to us. Baseball America is constantly updating their top 30s across you know months at a time, weeks at a time, as opposed to preseason and, and midseason. Do you like that? <laughs> I don't. No, it's it's not really fair, but okay. I, I think it, you yeah. know, people will read, like I will read it for sure. I just don't know how valuable it is. I mean, even... Like if you look, like Brian Ramos was unbelievable in what April, and then he was really bad in May, and now he's pretty good again. So, I mean, if you caught him when he was bad, you know, like you you might not rank him at all. So it's I don't mm-hmm. know, it's kind of deceiving doing it the way they're doing it. But I understand why they would update more than twice a year, I guess. Yeah, I think it's like you know, you, when you're ranking prospects, you bake in inconsistency, and maybe like, like a guy like Jose Rodriguez. Um, you know, we, we saw him struggle at Birmingham. The the bit he played last year, and and you know, when I was looking at him and ranking him, I thought, well, this this might be the uh, where like he's no longer playing faster than everybody else, and he might need some time to acclimate to a level that's you know as mature as he is um, and, and more of his physical tools are going to have to be refined into skills and he'll probably need a lot of the year to do that. But I kind of bake that into my ranking. So to kind of bail on him, uh, I think I had him ranked fifth, like to bail on him now seems like it's a little bit unfair and kind of a little bit disingenuous. So yeah, I'm not really a fan of, you know, like, like you said, I'll read it and I kind of more read it for, you know, I guess it's kind of treating it more as power rankings than prospect rankings and if you look at it that way, then it's maybe, you know, more, um, you know, more grounded into something we're used to rather than prospect rankings as a, as a major exercise for outlets like that. Yeah. So, you know, you've seen Birmingham this year too. So one thing that I kind of want to ask you, like if you had to rank right now and it's, it's really putting you on the spot, but if you listen to the episode, I, I was a little confused earlier, like, I feel like Lenyon Sosa, like you saw him in person, you wrote about him, what he's doing in double A. I mean, he's probably one of the top three prospects in the system. Now that means he jumped all the way up there, mm-hmm. but I mean, he's having a monster season in double A where White Sox hitters typically went to die. So I just like, think it's super impressive. And if we're going to do this, like he belongs up there with those top guys. I don't think it's out of hand. I'm trying to just think real quick on, on terms of who's above him. Like Montgomery, I think, is delivering. Uh, Ramos, as we talked about. Colossus, you know, given that he had the wrist injury, like uh, uh, that kind of goes into it. In terms of quality of season, Sosa is clearly ahead of him. But in terms of prospect stock, you know, and we'll talk about Colossus in a bit, I imagine. But uh, Sosa, I think he's... Yeah, I think it's fair to say top five. Like the swing is stronger. Like I, I don't know if you've seen the side-by-side clips, you know, from you know, side looks from last year to this year, but he is using a lot more of his lower body. Like you can see where the power is coming from. That's no accident. And then when it's paired with, you know, a strikeout rate, that's also lowering and a walk rate. That's, that's quite a bit higher. Like, yeah. I mean, he has some questions about maybe how good of a shortstop he can be, but the, the, the fundamentals I think of his offensive approach are a lot stronger than they were. And I think they're sustainable. So, you know, you, you wrote up 
the minor keys, obviously, like you like you do every day. And in there, James Fegan had an interesting story just on some of the hitting prospects in the system. Me and Mike have talked about, you know, I think there's some real gains in the system this year on that side. Like, you know, whether that's Andy Barquette's influence or something else or just players getting better, I don't know. But just what were your thoughts reading that? And just it's obviously one scout that said, you know, the system's better than people think. I mean, does it just indicate that maybe it's not 30 everywhere? It's obviously not great. None of us think that it's great. But, you know, maybe maybe it is a little bit better than we thought in the preseason. Well, it reminded me talking to Keith Law before the season when he uh, ranked, you know, when he published his rankings and his organizational rankings and he ranked them 30th and he ranked them kindly 30th saying they graduated some, you know, a lot of players like they, they, they're 30th for, you know, largely a good reason, even though, you know, and, and, you know, we kind of know as Sox fans that maybe it's being a little bit too generous because they should be able to <laughs> replenish some of that talent. Uh, but when it comes to like, you know, I, I asked him like for, for 30th, we've seen the White Sox rank 30th before and it was gross. Like when Addison Reed was the top prospect and, you know, Nestor Molino was number two and just not a whole lot going on that, uh, that you know, after the Dave Wilder scandal, we didn't see really uh, anything, uh, you know, sustainable or, or, you know, fixtures coming up through the system. And, you know, I asked him like, is this, you know, this doesn't feel like a 30th. We know what 30th feels like. This doesn't feel like 30th. And he agreed saying like, there's, there are some question marks. There are guys, whether it's because of the pandemic, whether it's because of injury, just, you know, uncertainty in, in terms of like a guy like Colossus coming over, like they just haven't had the opportunity to show what they can do over the course of a full season. Also like a lot of the guys, you know, that, uh, struggled in a ball last year could have really used a great falls that didn't exist anymore. So, uh, you know, I think he was allowing for certain players to get another crack at a ball, but I think we are seeing at least in some positions, like I think it's kind of lopsided or clumpy the way that the, uh, you know, organization is producing some prospects and they're really thin in other areas like pitching, but it is like, there are some fun players. Uh, I think you can put it that way. Like it's hard to field teams, uh, as we're seeing from the records of the affiliates, like it's, it's pretty uh, barren in some areas, especially on the pitching side. But when it comes to like guys to write about and guys to follow every day, like every, every affiliate has at least a couple guys worth tracking at that, that kind of granular level. That's really well said. I'm glad you put it in perspective that way, because that's what we try and talk about on the podcast as much as we can is to understand the context of where the White Sox stand at 30. Here's where I want to take the conversation, Jim, because you didn't mention pitching. You saw Matthew Thompson as we're recording this podcast the day of. We're going to get your opinion there and, and some of the stuff that you saw over the weekend with the dash. I want to go back to the athleticism point in what you were talking about with Brian Ramos, as well as some of these other star prospects on the White Sox. And, and, and that includes Oscar Colas. Those are the two names really at Winston-Salem that we're highlighting you know, there's Adam Hackenberg that you saw as well, who is really a fine catching prospect for the White Sox. And that's one of the things that the White Sox really haven't had to follow outside of Zach Collins. And Carlos Perez at this point said, he's of all, no disrespect. But here we see Adam Hackenberg, who's lauded by a lot of scouts and professionals. But before we get into all that, the athleticism, what, what did you see in Brian Ramos's swing? Let's start there and the way he was moving out on the field. I think with his swing, it just, it... It's, you know, to, to kind of go back to, you know, what it's saying about Lennon Sosa, uh, it, it's strong. It, it just, it seems like the, you know, the bat speed is good. The, um, it generates a lot of 
torque without looking like it's out of control. You don't see him off balance or like kind of corkscrewing in the ground. Uh, I think Coloss has a little bit of that. Like he's got a, uh, you know, a, a pretty aggressive swing and sometimes depending on, you know, whether he's trying to adjust to off speed or, or, you know, he was anticipating one pitch against another, sometimes he looked a little bit off balance. And I think James Fegan wrote about that in his piece, you know, including Coloss, just saying that uh, Chris Getz thought that Coloss was trying to just get into his power a little bit, you know, not, not letting the game come to him, trying to flash that uh, the power he's known for. And, and so he's pulling a lot of balls. And I, I did see that like the, the Bowling Green infield is pretty hard pan. So it worked out to his favor. Like he had a two hopper that hopped over both the first baseman and second baseman, uh, which is pretty impressive. And uh, he had another grounder that hit the first baseman in the neck. So he is generating some exit velocities into the ground right now, but I think he still needs to kind of figure out uh, where his barrel needs to be. Um, but with, with Ramos, I think it just, he's having the kind of season uh, and you can see it in the numbers, especially, you know, April and June may I think was a little bit, you know, just, got a little bit out of sorts, but it seems like he just, the barrel is where it's supposed to be more or less like the, you know, he's not rolling over pitches. He did ground to a double play, but is well struck to the right side, but he, it doesn't seem like he's off balance or his timing is off. He doesn't look like he's getting fooled. And, and, and that's, you know, what, what's most encouraging to me. And in the field, it just, you know, isn't tested too often. A lot of fly balls, um, you know, a lot of pop-ups for some reason in this, in this series, like, uh, there was a high sky on Sunday, um, no clouds in the sky, um, you know, high 80 degrees. And so saw like a lot of outfielders and infielders struggling with initial reads. Um, but they're just pop-up after pop-up after high fly after high fly. So I didn't see too much from him ranging, but the couple of plays I saw looked under control. And um, in the finale of the series, he was DH. I'm looking to see who was the third baseman in his, uh, in his place. It was um, Jason Matthews and he committed a couple of errors. He looked like a little bit unsure on, on, the reads getting caught in between hops and, and backing up on balls. He shouldn't. And to me, that's kind of, you know, sometimes how I notice prospects is like when you see the replacement level for a level come in and, and biff a couple plays that uh, the guy before him made uh, that kind of was a little bit encouraging to me. Now let's focus on Colas too, because this is somebody that James and I have been talking about on the podcast, especially even today, ranking him and, and questioning where we should put him is this a number two prospect in the system behind Colson Montgomery, 23 years old in Winston-Salem advanced day first full professional season stateside. We, we always have to preface it that way, but this is an advanced hitter coming from professional ball formerly. Uh, what were your evaluations and impressions of Colas in person? Well, he's got some, uh, he's got some mannerisms to him at the plates where um, he has his like a little shoulder twitch and hip twitch, like quick hip twitch. Like, um, he almost looks like like the wind-up action figures and you wind them to their brink and you're not quite sure if they're wound all the way. So you twist them a little bit and they go like maybe a quarter of an inch and then snap back in the original position because they're wound all the way. That's kind of how he looks at the plate. Like he does the shoulder twitch, like, nope, can't go any further. Hip twitch, no, I can't go further. And it looks when he's at the plate, like he's ready to do something. So he has your attention there. And, and I can't tell if that's like a, a case where I'm watching him already, but it's something I noticed that I hadn't seen on web streams because I saw him from you know both angles from from both dugouts. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was taking photos, so I was trying to get open side for both hitters, but Ramos and uh, and Coloss are batting back to back, so I couldn't. So I got close side and open side for both uh, uh, both prospects. But that's something I hadn't noticed. Just like these little twitches he does at the at the plate, 
And it looks like he's, you know, just wanting to tap in that power. And I think that's kind of what Chris Getz is getting at. Just like he's ready to, um, you know, kind of explode on everything. And sometimes the pitches aren't there to do that with. So uh, that was one thing that jumped out to me. But what was interesting is in the, uh, in Sunday's game, he faced, I think, lefties at least twice because um, they, they had a bullpen game for Bowling Green. And he drew a walk and he singled over a shortstop. And they were, that looked more controlled to me. Like he didn't look like as, uh, you know, perhaps it's because he knew he had to stay on the ball longer or keep the front shoulder closed a bit more to track breaking stuff away. But when he's facing a lefty, the swing looked less uh, aggressive, less um, like he was trying to attack them before he got attacked. And perhaps that's something, you know, to, take into, you know, I guess future weeks or future series, you know, as we watch him is just seeing like, yeah, you know, maybe there is a, a gear he can find against right hand pitching to where like he can take singles when they're giving it to him versus trying to create extra base hits where there are only singles. So shifting over to the pitching a little bit, you know, you, you talked about where the system is lacking. And I think looking at the records of the teams, it's mostly because, you know, they, they really don't have that much pitching and you could go back to some of the recent drafts and, you know, a lot of the pitching is, is college seniors and what's not, you know, they spent money on high schoolers. And one of those high schoolers is Matthew Thompson. You know, he and Dahlquist and Kelly and all these guys, they all get lumped together by us and by everybody. But Matthew Thompson, you know, supposedly, one of the most athletic pitchers in the system. He, you know, he had started his last three or four starts, you know, lots of strikeouts. He was very efficient in his starts, you know, so I was looking to see, you know, how he would do today. You saw him in person. What were your impressions? It was a little bit shorter than his, uh, his last few. I wish, you know, uh, with the way the rotation uh, broke down, I wish I saw Thompson in his first look against Bowling Green versus second, because I wonder just for like a younger pitcher, especially, uh, you know, a guy like Thompson with his background, high school pick, then the pandemic losing a year of development time um, to have these six game series where you face one affiliate twice in a week. Yeah, and, and you're trying to work on all your pitches and you maybe only have one way to attack hitters right now on a reliable basis. Like, I just wonder if that's a difficult assignment for somebody like him is to see one team twice in a row, especially Bowling Green. You know, it's a Tampa Bay Rays affiliate. So, uh, you know, the Rays seem to win championships at every level. So I think, you know, Bowling Green is probably a tough assignment twice in a week. Um, so when it comes to like the way the, uh, hot rods attacked him, like you know, they did some damage early in counts. Uh, they seemed to jump on his fastball and the fastball velocity was good. It was most of the time, like 94, uh, 95, which I think is what you want to see from him a couple of times dipped down to 92. But when I was, you know, third inning, fourth inning, I saw 92 and I thought like, Ooh, velocity is dropping. And then like, he'd come back with 95. So it seemed like he was able to rediscover his velocity and maybe it was just a matter of like, you know, just trying to change speeds or something, but it was, it, you know, he found the 95 when he wanted to, it seems. So for all the talk about how inconsistent his top end velocity was, he seemed like he held it. Uh, also got some swings and misses on his breaking stuff, like the, uh, the curve and slider. He threw both of those and sometimes threw them in fastball counts, which was nice to see. Um, and, uh, you got some whiffs like the changeup didn't seem to get that kind of reaction that the slider and curveball did. But uh, just, I think, you know, facing one team twice in a week, he gave him a couple homers uh, first homers he'd given up in uh, four starts. So like he, and he didn't walk anybody, didn't hit anybody. So he was attacking the strikes. And I think just, you know, my, my sense of the game was that 
facing the same affiliate twice in a week and a good affiliate at that, just if you're attacking in the strike zone, they can probably adjust and have a better understanding of what those strikes look like. Yeah, it's a good point. He was really good against them the last time out, the earlier start, like you mentioned. So, you know, a couple more guys there that I think people have paid attention to. Adam Hackenberg, 18th rounder last year. Mike alluded to the fact there's, you know, I don't really know what Adam Hackenberg is. I mean, he was a junior out of Clemson that was hurt a lot, but the Sox don't have much catching. So that's why him doing anything is kind of noteworthy. And then, you know, Luis Mieses too, I feel like has been in the system forever and is still pretty young at Winston playing in the corner outfield. So what was your impressions of those two guys? I think with, uh, with Hackenberg, I was impressed by his receiving, like watching behind the plate and watching some of the reactions from, uh, hot rods hitters. Um, I think he got probably five, six backwards K's like, you know, strikeouts looking, um, on a lot of them on edge pitches. And he did a nice job, especially with lower strikes of, catching him on the way up. Um, you saw a lot of just the, the mitt moving towards the plates. You know, I didn't see a lot of, you know, occasionally he'd catch a low, a low pitch and the mitt would go in the dirt, but that's because it wasn't worth saving. It's just, he's not going to whiff on that. So he just, you know, take it in the ground, but anything that was, you know, presentable that wasn't like, didn't require him to reach across the plate. Like he was catching on the way up and it seemed to uh, pay off in the form of strikeouts for his pitchers. So that was nice to see. Um, there were a couple fastballs um, low in the dirt, like kind of just short hopped him that, that uh, he didn't block cleanly. One got through with his legs. The other just uh, kind of clipped him in the heel and rolled away from him for extra bases. So that might be like one, uh, you know, and we've seen that with like framing first guys like Grandal and Tyler Flowers that when they're, you know, that's focused on framing, sometimes those uh, blockable pitches get away from him. So that might be the one drawback he might need to work on. Got a couple of throws off that were, you know, uh, weren't outs, but looked fine enough. Like they weren't running on him. They weren't, uh, they, they weren't pouncing on him. So I imagine is you know, from what I saw, the arm is okay. Um, hit an opposite field fly, you know, for, to the warning track for a sack fly. He seems like if he's going to, you know, advance and and be on the major league radar, it will be as a catcher pitchers like throwing to versus somebody who's going to define himself by, you know, power or, you know, getting on base. Like the, he looks under control at the plate, but it didn't seem like, you know, he wasn't really ripping the ball and, and you know, judging it by, you know, how many balls are they pulling into the air. Uh, didn't have that going for him over the course of two days. Uh, had some pop-ups ground into a double play. So, Based on, you know, my two looks, which I imagine, you know, it, it counts as the smallest of all samples, just struck me as a guy who, uh, you know, catches well. And and that's certainly great for a guy at his level and how the White Sox got him. Um, but, you know, I imagine if he gets, if he advances, it'll be in a way that if you're scouting off the stat line, you're going to say like, what's the big deal? Why do they like him so much? And, and that might be why they like him. Oh, I'm, oh, Mieses too. Uh, Second game, he uh, he subbed for Duke Ellis, who got ejected. <laughs> and the Duke Ellis experience was a lot of fun. Um, but he came in, faced a couple lefties, so not really a strong side. And he still looks like you know somebody who profiles more like a platoon bat because these stronger, more confident swings are against righties with breaking stuff coming into where it seems like he really has to focus on keeping that front shoulder closed and really just, you know, kind of keeping the barrel in the hitting zone longer. So it's not really an assertive swing against left-handed pitching, but right-handed pitching, it looks like somebody who, you know, has some loft, has, uh, you know, is finding, uh, you know, he's not going to draw a ton of walks, it seems, but he, he doesn't really swing at a whole lot of junk. Just, uh, he, I think he has a good enough barrel control to where like a lot of the pitches he swings at, he puts in the play. 
Very encouraging and great insight, Jim. A couple more before we let you go. I want to ask you about the big league club, but before I do that, you you got to tell me what the Duke Ellis experience is. And I'm curious about Ty Madrigal. Did you see him this weekend? Uh, he, he didn't pitch for me. I, I did see Trey Jeans, who uh, you know has some you know good strikeout numbers. So wanted to see what he's about. He throws like sits 93, 94. Has a a uh, curveball, I think the the prospect writers would say was flashes plus, uh, but you know a lot of times just didn't do much. Or the command wasn't great, but got a couple you know knee buckles and and swings on strikes uh, just with some good sharp breaking action. So there might be a, a two pitch combo there, but it's not quite there yet. Uh, Duke Ellis just um, creates a lot of action, and uh, you know he's old for the level. He's twenty four, so there's that. But he also has a strange development path as a non-drafted free agent who just kind of got dropped into high A and struggled last year and is doing better this time around. So uh, it, it's worth giving him a look, but just, you know, I think he's somebody who's fun to have at a level because he generates a lot of action. He, he bunts, he, he hits line drives, he runs, he gets on base. Um, yeah. I saw him make a nice sliding catch in the left field corner. Um, nice route, nice aggressive line towards the, towards the line and, 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 and stealing an out for his pitcher. Saw him, uh, uh, a tremendous sequence on Sunday, get hit by a pitch on the hand with a bunt attempt. He had to, he, he looked like he might've broken a finger, but he had to stay in uh, the game because I think the umpire said that he committed to the bunt. Uh, then he came back in the box, singled. Um, so he reached base, stole second or tried to steal second, got thrown out, disagreed with the call. It was a bang, bang play. Uh, disagreed, was yelling at the umpire while running back to the dugout and then kept yelling at the umpire from the dugout and got ejected. So <laughs> there was just a, he was, uh, you know, I think he's 25 or 28 or something like that stealing bases now. So maybe he's not used to getting thrown out and was very offended at the fact that uh, an umpire could think he was thrown out. But uh, yeah, certainly a lot of action. And, you know, there's that kind of um, uh, tier of, old for the level outfielders like uh, Nesloni, uh, Tyler Nesloni in Birmingham, like he's been raking there. And it'd be kind of nice, you know, with Adam Hazley getting bumped up to the majors uh, to kind of maybe test these guys, you know, move Ellis up to Birmingham, move Nesloni up to uh, Charlotte just for a little bit and see if there's anything there because, you know, perhaps it's a case where they are just organizational players and they help make a manager's job easier at those levels by performing and giving a reliable bat and presence in the lineup. But Given his unusual development background, I'd like to see if that, you know, as we saw with like Jose Rodriguez, his action-based game uh, has uh, doesn't quite have the edge that it did in Winston-Salem at Birmingham. And so I'd like to see the same test for Ellis to see like, does playing aggressively, you know, his brand of baseball, does that generate success on its own or will he have to refine some of those, uh, some of those actions into, you know, stronger skills? There it is. Now, when it comes to organizational depth, and we relate this to the White Sox, my biggest concern is the pitching. I know the hitting has been all the rage this year and the lack thereof. However, I feel like if there's any chance for this White Sox team to, one, make the playoffs and, two, make a run, it's because of their pitching staff. Now with Jimmy Lambert being included at the Major League level at this point, as well as Davis Martin's emergence, where do you see this organization, or at least how do you see this organization when it comes to organizational pitching depth? And where do you see the big league club, how they sit right now uh, as it stands? I thought the pitching depth was going to be pretty scary when Michael Kopech was penciled in for the fifth spot and there really wasn't anything behind him. Then they signed Johnny Cueto. And right now um, you can make an argument that he's the best pitcher on the team, like just you know, snapshot wise, like maybe now over the course of a full season, things will even out, but just, 
if he's not the staff leader, he's at least a staff savior right now for the innings he's delivering on a reliable basis. And then you have Davis Martin kind of coming out of nowhere and replacing the kind of production we thought they might be getting from Jonathan Stever. So between between Cueto stepping in for Keuchel and Martin stepping in for Stever and Jimmy Lambert finding a niche as a uh, like, you know, with Lambert, I liked watching him pitch one time through and then it got scary. Like, I just didn't like his ability to, you know, and I think, you know, uh, they tried to manage him as an opener type as a let's cross our fingers for three innings and hope that he doesn't have to wade too deep into the lineup a second time through, especially if he can avoid the heart of the lineup, that would be great. And he had some starts that were good for that. And some starts that were just, they won innings uh, no matter what uh, they're okay. Taking loss, especially last year with the kind of divisional lead they had. But I think with Lopez, with uh, Lambert's with Martin, all kind of able to provide two to three innings of quality relief, whether it's in the, you know, whether as openers, whether as uh, uh, bulk pitchers, uh, relieving an opener, like they have some guys who can mix and match. And, you know, if it is a situation where a starter is rehabbing or, you know, they don't want to push a guy like Michael Kopech coming off a knee injury or somebody like Lance Lynn, or if they just, you know, for whatever reason, the you know, imagine a situation where the bullpen is rested enough to where they don't need to go a hundred pitches or even 90 pitches with the guy. Like, I think they have depth. It's maybe not like the kind of depth where like you wish you could see Davis Martin start every day as a number four starter because um, yeah, some of the sheen might wear off. He might get overexposed a little bit and they might be looking for their next sixth starter. But I think for the time being uh, with other guys able to provide bulk innings, like rotating through Lopez and Lambert and Martin, like I think there's a nice little mix here that allows La Russa and allows like the uh, minor league pitching brains, you know, to, to kind of rope everybody in to say like, how can they help without asking too much of them? And right now I think, you know, as long as Kopech is able to stay healthy, uh, they can continue not asking too much of Lambert and Martin. Now, if Kopech you know, or somebody else, Lance Lynn, uh, has a recurrence of their knee issues and have to go on the injury list for some amount of time, I might get a little bit nervous about Martin, but uh, at least I like what he's shown so far. And I'm very glad that he's a guy the White Sox can give starts to without feeling like it's just a, a desperate reach like it was with Stever. That's Jim Margulis, editor-in-chief of Sox Machine, also part of the Sox Machine podcast. Jim, thanks for taking the time to talk to us tonight. Really appreciate you. My pleasure. And uh, because I haven't said this yet on your platform, happy to have you aboard. Absolutely. That's Jim Margulis, the man, the myth, the legend, following the White Sox so you don't have to. Now we can all do it together, collectively. Thanks for being a part of Future Sox and Sox Machine. You can listen to us every Tuesday on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Subscribe to us on wherever you get your podcasts, but also become a patron if you're willing. Really helps us grow the platform and our product. Thanks for all your support. We really do appreciate it. So for Jim Margulis and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. This has been another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Again, listen every Tuesday. We'll have it ready for you. Until next time, folks, thanks so much for listening.